National Convention, Reverend William Barber gave one of the best speeches in Philadelphia, one that issued a moral calling to the nation. Today, when our moral underpinnings are being tested, there's no better person to talk with than the man whose multiple arrests in the Moral Monday movement have galvanized the nation. Get ready for an episode that is one part history seminar and two parts church, right now. Reverend Barber, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Jonathan. So you spoke at the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia in 2016 and gave what I thought was one of the best convention speeches there. It was filled with morality and talking about, you know, who we are as a as a country and and folks who use religion to mask other other agendas. I want everyone to take a listen to one part of the speech where you address that. And when religion is used to camouflage meanness, we know that we have a heart problem in America. There there have always been forces that wanted to harden, even stop the heart of our democracy. So here we are. What, three years? No, two years. My math is bad. Two years later, and all the things that we have seen, particularly in, in June, um, w- what do you think about where things are in the country? Well, I think exactly what I said that day that the country indeed has a heart problem. Um, we have a um, walking away, if you will, by some extremists of our deepest moral and our deepest religious, our deepest constitutional values like love and justice and treatment of people, right? And treatment of the stranger, right? And the poor. Um, That night um, that I spoke at the convention, I had been on a 26 state tour for a moral revival. Um, We had marched on the Republican convention. We had tried to present a higher ground moral agenda to them. They refused to hear us. We did present it to the Democratic Convention. I was asked to speak. I declined first, um, Jonathan. Now why? Well, because I wanted to make sure that if I was asked to speak, I had to think about, number one, the movement we were building across the country and the commitment to be nonpartisan. But secondly, I was not going to give a just an endorsement speech like a um, person just doing partisan politics. I really felt, along with people like Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris and Dr. James Forbes and Tracy Blackman and Sister Simone that had been on this tour with me, and thousands of other people that we need a moral message that's not locked in the puny language of left versus right and conservative versus liberal, uh, that says, listen, some issues shouldn't even be about um, left versus right. They should be about our moral center. You know, healthcare should be about right or wrong. It was Teddy Roosevelt, Republican, who first pushed it in 1912, and President Obama pushed it through. But I mean, it really is not, it shouldn't be a Democratic, you know, a Democrat uh, issue or a Republican issue. Um, addressing the 140 million people that are poor in this country, addressing the 62 million people that 
work every day without a living wage. We have 400 people in this country that make an average of $97,000 an hour. Uh, we have fifth people who want 15 in the union, they get locked up. Something's wrong in the heart. Something's wrong when a politician wakes up in the morning and says, you know, I'm gonna work today to deny healthcare. I'm gonna work today to deny healthcare to children. I'm gonna work today to keep people with pre-existing conditions from having access. I'm gonna work today to suppress the vote. Something is wrong much deeper than partisanism. Uh, and so I said no at first, unless I had the freedom uh, to be able to speak to what I believe is the only way we can come up out of. I had seen during that campaign, you know, we had one candidate running on nothing but pure meanness and, and, and division and racism. But then on the other side, you know, we often talk about the middle class, not the poor. Uh, we had, had almost 26, we had, by that time we'd had over 20 presidential debates, not one hour on poverty not one hour on voter suppression, even though we were about to enter into another election cycle without the protection of the Voter Voting Rights Act in the last 50 years. It was troubling. And so I hoped to be able to say, you know, there are some deeper, there's a, there's a possibility for us to revive and resurrect um, and uh, defibrillate, if you will, mm -hmm. the heart of this democracy. And, and we couldn't give up on the democracy. Since then, what we have seen is that we're in a moment, and, and I want to be careful here, what we've seen over the last two years is not un-American, but a part of America's history. Hmm. It's not the first time a person got elected who lost the popular vote and then used their selection by the Electoral College to roll back gains. That happened in 1877. And by 1883, the gains of the Reconstruction Movement were overturned, the Civil Rights Act of 1875. And by 1896, you had Plessy versus Ferguson. That also happened in 1914 with the election of Woodrow Wilson, who played Birth of a Nation, a racist movement that, 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 that um, told lies about black and white people working together in Reconstruction. He played that movie a hundred years before Bannon was ever in the White House. So the first thing we got to do for a minute is stop saying we've never seen this before and stop acting as though Trump is the first. Fail to recognize that this is the 50th anniversary of the Southern strategy that was began in 18, 1968. And that strategy led by Strom Thurmond and Kevin Phillips and those had a 50 year plan. So, so what scares me is that sometimes people think this is new, didn't recognize what was happening, and now it's not just Trump, but all of his enablers. So we keep saying Trump, but he couldn't, he can't write a bill. He didn't pass the worst trillion dollar, two trillion dollar tax reform that in, that's 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 taking more money from the poor and the working poor than was extracted from the backs of slaves. He didn't do that. The Congress did that. He signed it. Uh, he he can't overturn health care. The Congress has done that. He didn't put in place the worst voter suppression that we've seen since Jim Crow that began in 2010. We've had 20 some states engaged in voter suppression since 2010. He has not refused to pass the Voting Rights Act, to fix the Voting Rights Act since 2013. Ryan McConnell Boehner did that. And 
And, and we called Strom Thurmond a racist when he blocked the 1957 voting, uh, 1957 Civil Rights Act for one day. They have engaged in interposition and nullification for over five years. So we have to have a broader examination and analysis that we're in the middle of a the attempt to deconstruct the possibility of a third reconstruction. Trump is a pawn in that, but he alone is not the problem. The problem is what Neil Painter says at Princeton. We have this call and response in American history, the call for justice and then this response, this backlash, right? And 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 what is tremendously concerning is that that's where we are. That too often many people are following the antics of Trump, the words of racism and not the works of racism, the stacking the federal courts, the tearing down discrimination laws, the attempt to destroy uh, um, you know, programs for the poor and do what Bannon said, deconstruct the administrative state. But. Even with all of that, traveling around the country, I see something else happening. I'm seeing thousands of people coming together, thousands of people saying, we are not going to settle for this. We are not going to give up on America. We are going to fight for a, uh, a moral America. We're going to fight to re- restore the heart. And in the last few weeks in the Poor People's Campaign, you know, we've seen 3,000 people across this country do nonviolent civil disobedience. I want to get I want to get into into, into that, that uh-huh. in, in a second, but I want to. Did you expect? In, in, mm-hmm. I, I'm glad you mentioned this call and response mm-hmm. that we have in American history, and how no, this is not the first time that mm-hmm. we that this has happened mm-hmm. in this country. But given your knowledge of history, mm-hmm. did even you expect that the United States of America would open up prisons for babies? that were snatched from from their parents trying to come into this country, which has always been seen as a beacon of, of hope and opportunity and freedom. It is the, the, the knowledge of history that always keeps me hopeful but skeptical. That may seem strange. I'm hopeful for what the possibility of this country is, but I can never be naive. Well, this is a country that snatched people from Africa. This is a country that snatched children from slave mothers and sold them. This is a country that snatched Indians, indigenous people. This is a country that did concentration camps for Japanese people in this country. This is a country that sent my daddy to war in a segregated army where he had to ride in the back of a train um, um, while... German prisoners of war ran ran the front. This is a country uh, that knows we have uh, that for every one million people that do not have health care, five uh, five thousand people or more die, and we still are the only of twenty five wealthiest countries that do not provide health care, even though we know people are dying. This is a country right now where two hundred fifty thousand people die every year from poverty, according to the the um, the uh, mailman school of public policy, public health, and you don't see a great moral outcry about that. Uh, this is a country in some places where you can see on TV an unarmed person shot by the police in the back and get off. Uh, this is a country 
where we have 140 million people living in poverty, 140 million people, 73% are women and children, the majority are women, children, and the disabled. Uh, and yet we have a politics where most politicians will not even say the word poor. This is a country where we have what Melissa, what um, uh, one sister calls um, the new Jim Crow, um, where we have more people incarcerated than in China, though we have a billion less people than China. Has. So we have to recognize there is not this pristine past or pristine present, and somehow it's been disrupted by this pitiful reality of right now. The reality is we are a schizophrenic nation. Dr. King said in, in, in 1968, there is the other America. One America is always full of milk and honey. There's another America that's full of hurt and pain. That is what we battle against. That is why our constitution says we're always trying to be a more perfect union. What I did not, however, expect fully, I knew there would be reaction to the president of presidency of Obama, just him. I mean, even though I don't didn't agree with all of his policies, but I knew that there would be a backlash because the backlash began before he he got inaugurated when Newt Gingrich held the, the meeting and said, look, let's don't do anything. The backlash was seen in 2010. The backlash was seen in the questioning of the electorate and the call for all this voter suppression after black people and brown people showed their power with progressive white people after he broke through in the South, in Florida and North Carolina and Virginia. So on one hand, I knew that was possible, but... And I knew we were headed in dangerous waters when a man could come down an escalator and call Mexican people rapists and whatnot and still continue. Because I've been thinking about the 5,000 thing he said that Obama could not have thought. <laughs> and it would have been the <laughs> end of his political career. Oh, yeah. Right. Absolutely. So, so once I started seeing that, I said, wait a minute, there's something going on here. And what I do, what I knew is that if you are willing to excoriate a whole people for political opportunism, if you are willing to lie and say everything anybody ever did before you got elected was bad, and you you are, remember he said in his convention, I and I alone can fix it. For me as a theologian, the number one sin in the Bible is idolatry. The second sin, greatest sin in the Bible, is once someone is idolatrous, politically or whatever, when they get power, they abuse the poor and the weakest. So I knew in that moment we were up for a ride. Um, and then when he appointed Jeff Sessions, and Jeff Sessions, Jeffrey Beauregard Sessions, who has had a history, uh, born in Selma, but he was against the Selma to Montgomery movement, lied and tried to get, you know, people who pushed for voting rights locked up for long time, federal charges. I knew he was putting together a team of people that would lean into white nationalism in policy, not just in name calling. And when I, when I heard that Richard Spencer endorsed Trump, and Richard Spencer said that the proxy war they had to fight now was stopping immigration. I didn't know where it would lead to, but I knew it would lead to an ugly place. And we are at that ugly place 
But Jonathan, before we got to this ugly place with children being snatched and caged, we saw the ugly policy violence when we had a debate about rolling back chips, my the heart child screamed. Health child insurance mm-hmm. when the when when the attorney general said, "I'm not even going to pr- fight for health care, even pre-existing condition." I have a daughter born with hydrocephalus. One of my prayers in life was to live long enough. I said to God one day, "If you just let me live long enough till this country changes the law, that." If you have a pre-existing condition, you're not to die. So when the Affordable Care Act happened, I said to God, I hope you will hold me to that prompt, that commitment. But if so, I'm ready because my child now can live. So when you have an attorney general that turns the Justice Department into the uh, to a and the adversary of justice, the adversary of voting rights, the adversary of equal protection under the law. Once those things happen, you're on a downward course that can lead you right to where we are now. Children. No, no, no. Let's stop saying it. Children. Brown children. Right. Brown children. But you, we all know goodness well that if this was a bunch of white children in cages, every so-called evangelical pastor would be. Let's turn this over. This is white children in cages and black border officers and and Latino border officers putting them there. I mean, I'm laughing because never in a million years would you can't even conceive of that happening because there would be there'd be outrage. This place would be burned down. Right. It would be other outrage. People would be in the street. And what I'm saying is we've got to get to a moral outrage and engage in non massive nonviolent civil disobedience and, and voter re- registration because we are in we are in a moment where this is not normal politics and I, I commentators on TV and others we have to stop expecting to this is not normal politics this you have to go back to the redemption movement that tore down the reconstruction movement of the 1800 you have to go back to the beginnings of the southern strategy to un, to even get a kind of an understanding this is about Dem, the takeover of the democracy. This is about undermining the fundamental de- democratic principles and our fundamental religious principles. This is about policy where preachers have decided to engage in modern day heresy in order to support injustice. This is about whether or not America can be. You know, Langston Hughes said, America's never been America to me, but I swear this oath America will be. Right now, we're dealing with can America be and what is happening because it's spreading around the world. It's spreading around the world with this neo-fascism and this white nationalism. That's not about somebody calling you the N-word. That's not about somebody um, putting a Klan sign up, but it's about literally engaging in policies that has a disparate impact on black and brown people and poor white people, but many times they get bamboozled and don't recognize Mm -hmm. what's going on. Now, since you mentioned his name, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions, the attorney general of the United States, he invoked Romans 13 Mm. to justify the zero tolerance immigration Mm -hmm. policy. I would love to know what what you thought about that and what he got wrong. 
And just your thoughts on why do politicians always seem to hide behind the Bible to justify some, actions that are yeah. clearly indefensible? Yeah, yeah. Some of them do. Um, well, first of all, remember now he was raised in slave master religion. That was that's much of the religion of the South. Uh, so-called, you know, I mean, so-called, first of all, there's no such term as white evangelical. That's a term that was made up uh, or the religious right. It's either, it's, you know, either it's Christian or it's not. Uh, you don't get to pick and choose. And what happened is this goes all the way back to slave master religion. It comes through the spiritual mobilization group that was paid for by corporations to stand against the New Deal and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, right on up through the moral majority, the religious right and whatever. It was a way, it was, it was a heretical form of ontology and theology designed to twist the scriptures in order to justify the ugliness of, of segregation, slavery, genocide against the indigenous people, suppression of women, on and on and on and on and so forth. Uh, it's as old as this country, right? It's as old as the false prophets of Pharaoh in the Bible. It's as old as the Pharisees who took on Jesus. It is the twisting of texts. And he only expressed what he'd been taught. Um, notice, however, those who always claim to be Christian never bring up Jesus. That's the first way you know it's not right. They never say Jesus. They claim to be Christian, but they never say Jesus, who is the 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 Lord of Christianity, if you will, the the center of Christianity. They never say Jesus would be about this policy. They find some text to make a pretext. That's actually wrong. Now, let me say three things about his text. Number one, and he and he and he got that interpretation from people like Franklin Graham and and Jerry Falwell Jr. and all of that. That kind of stuff is taught, and and we're challenging it. Now, many of us. I'm an evangelical, and I'm a biblicist. I'm a theologically conservative, liberal, evangelical, Pentecostal, charismatic. In other words, I'm a Christian, <laughs> right? So, first of all, I'm offended that he would take the sacred text and try to use it to support an evil policy. Secondly, Paul was in prison for challenging the government. <laughs> so his whole, uh, what we call his critical, uh, historical criticism of the text is wrong, is off, but he wouldn't have been taught that. Thirdly, the Bible has 2,000, almost 2,500 scriptures in the Bible that speak to love, justice, and how you treat the stranger. He's ignoring 2,500 texts and simply trying to pull out one that he interprets wrong. That same text was used to endorse slavery, genocide against native uh, people, and on and on and so forth. Even it used to endorse Nazism. Now, <clears throat> The problem, Jonathan, I have with this is the slowness with which um, people like Falwell and Graham spoke out. And then when they spoke out, they spoke out in a limited way because you remember they went in and prayed for the president. And I believe in praying for leaders, but you don't pray for them while they are praying, P-R-E-Y-I-N-G, on the least, the lonely, and the left out. If you pray for them, you pray for them after you have spoken prophetically to them. 
and you say to them, you're wrong for doing this. This is not right. This is not God. This is not justice. This is not love. So it is, it is, it is, it is, um, 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 it is, but, but, but I think it is actually helpful. This is going to sound really crazy that he would say that because it, because it's making people see what we're dealing with. See, one of the thing about this group of extremists and Trump is they don't have any filters. <laughs> right, that's for you sure. Know, it, you know, Ryan is kind of cool with his stuff. McConnell's cool with their stuff. I mean, you, there's not a penny worth of difference between their policy objectives. It's just the way in which they go at it. But Trump and Sessions are just letting it go. And in a, in a sense, there's nothing like, that, that's nothing that calls forth the truth like a lie. There's nothing that 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 births a movement for justice like overt, radical, mean injustice, where people come to a point where Dr. King said that night in Montgomery when the when he did that first speech, he said there comes a time when people just get tired. And I'm praying to God that the American public, people of faith, will become so exacerbatedly tired of these lies and injustice that they will stand up and speak up. Well, I mean, this gets to what you were getting at before, and that is in your travels ac across the country, you were beginning to say that people are starting to rise, to rise up. And you were, I mean, people who know Reverend Barber know um, Morrow Mondays in, in North Carolina, and you've been, you've been doing it, doing it ever since. But is it the fact that the 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 lies from this administration, the policies of this administration, that is doing more to galvanize people than than anything else. Well, it, it's partly. You know, in Mar Mondays we didn't have Trump, but we had a state house and a state legislature. And by the way, we won in Mar Monday. That's mm -hmm. the story people don't tell. But it was four years of fighting, four years of going to jail, four years of voter mobilization. But the governor that created is gone. The gerrymandering has been overturned by the courts. The voter suppression was labeled as surgical racism. And many people looked at us and said, well, why are you just going to jail? It's not going to make any difference. But they didn't know how to build a movement. And in a movement, you have to have, you know, in many times, nonviolent civil disobedience. You have to have a legal strategy. You have to have a voting mobilization strategy. And they all go together as one. And you have to build in a fusion. If you look at it in North Carolina, it was in the South, about 65% of the people that joined in the fight against racism, the fight against denying health care, the fight against denying living wages were white. Many of them were from Western North Carolina in the part of the state people told me we couldn't organize mm -hmm. in. But we brought black people from the, uh, white people from Western North Carolina together with black people from the Sand Hills and the coast and they came together. I think that two things are happening. Yes, the exacerbation like the UN Rapporteur report on Trump and poverty say his policies are only exacerbating a problem that was already real. So I think yes, the, the, the constant bombardment and the lies and arrogance is, is going to have a um, counter effect. Pride cometh before the fall. That's a deep scriptural mm -hmm. revelation. Uh, you can't push people down, but so far. You can't beat people up, but so far. That's part of it. The other part of it is many people have, are, are just tired of where we, for the last 40 years, we basically eradicated the word poverty from political discourse while poverty is growing. 
And so many people are not engaged because they never hear their name, their condition, or their situation. We've spent three years, me and Dr. Liz Theo Harris, traveling this country, going in, doing deep dive training with poor people, clergy, and, 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 and advocates, having mass meetings. And everywhere we go, 1,000 people show up, 10 or 15,000, sometimes 50,000 people online. We now have 40 coordinating committees in 40 states. Um, we have an agenda that's rooted in an audit of America called the Souls of Poor Folk, auditing America 50 years after the Poor People's Campaign. We designed with the people, not, not helicopter leadership, but from the bottom up, uh, a, a, a list of demands. Over the last three weeks, since uh, five weeks since Mother's Day, we've had over 3,000 people across America do civil disobedience simultaneously more than any time in the history of this country. We're being told by historians in a period of time simultaneously. Uh, we've had thousands of people uh, witness. We've had 15 impressions, that million impressions on Twitter. Over a million people have watched, watched our videos. We've traveled from Grays Harbor, Washington, where it's the zip code with the highest number of white millennial people living homeless all the way down to Lowes County, Alabama, where 35 percent of the people have parasites in their water. And the 50 years after the civil rights movement and the march from Selma to, um, uh, to Montgomery, people still have raw sewage in the back of their yards where children play and they're tired of being ignored. They're and, they're, and, and they're coming together, whether it's white women in West Virginia, have gone to West Virginia, or Harlan County, Kentucky, that's one of the 30th poorest counties in the country, called Harlan County, USA. I was in a room with Hatfields and McCoys, 500 white people in Harlan County. They said, you can't go to Harlan County. They voted 89% for Trump. But some people voted the way they voted, out of fear and a misunderstanding, and because they're being ignored. And what I'm finding is if you go there with, with the moral agenda, people want to come together. People want to believe that this nation doesn't have to be have to leave so many people behind. Um, and so I'm seeing uh, a, a rising tide in this. And we're, we're this movement. This we have 40 days. We said we're going to have 40 days to launch a movement, not to have a march, not to have a moment, but to launch a movement. And now we have thousands of people in 40 states that are coming to Washington, D.C. on the 23rd of, um, of June and, and, and to saying we are here and we are the founders, the founding members of a 21st century poor people's campaign, a national call to moral revival. We had, when Dr. King did it, people walked away from him, churches, denominations, civil rights organizations. We have major denominations that have taken votes in their denomination, denominations with over a million members, saying we're fully in this campaign, 144 partners. But the bottom line is the people from the bottom, you know, like Pamela Rush and Amy, Amy and Brother Sturges, and I'm just calling off names, black and white and brown and red and young and old and gay and straight, who are saying we have to have a fusion coalition to force a third reconstruction in America. And and some are doing it because of the, 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 the what Trump administration and the Congress is doing. Some are doing it because they recognize it, that 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 this is a moral mal that um Trump is just a malady. And some are doing it like a woman that just left a minute ago, she's told me with tears in her, I've been waiting fifty years for a movement that would 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 put would put race and poverty together. She said, I've been waiting, I've been saving my energy for 50 years.
to resurrect the Poor People Campaign. I've been waiting 50 years to see somebody, a, a movement have the courage to believe you could bring black people and Appala- white people in Appalachia together with white people from Alabama. And she said, now nah, I'm ready, I'm ready. And so I'm moved by the beginning of the launch of this movement. It's, it, I, you know, in some ways we had our doubts, but the people have proven that, um, um, well, yeah. Well, why did you have your doubts? Well, you know, you always wonder in a movement. I mean, you know, part of faith is having doubt. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, people people forget that in the book of Ezekiel, when um, God shows Ezekiel a valley of dry bones, God says, Ezekiel, can these bones live? He said, I don't know. That's his answer. I don't know. I really, I don't know. These, These are mean people. These politicians are mean. People may be too beaten down. People may be just tired. Maybe they can't, I don't know. And then God says, well, will you go try? And that's where faith kicks in. Don't, we shouldn't ever think that Harriet Tubman just said, oh, I just know I can get 500 people out of slavery. No, that's not how that worked. Dr. King didn't just go to Mount Government. I just know everything's gonna work out. He was available. You know, he had moments of doubt. He said, Lord, take this from me one night over a cup of coffee. I don't want this. And then God spoke to him and he said he experienced God like he had never experienced God before. Um, uh, read some of the history. Dr. King had doubt about the March on Washington. He was very tormented about it. Uh, went through a kind of psychological depression. And people forget it was Mahalia Jackson. Mm-hmm. Tell Dr. him about King. the dream, yeah. Martin. Tell and him about know, the dream. And, and many of his own advisors had said, now, Doc, don't you go up there with all that preaching today. Now, you stick to this because, you know, Kennedy already doesn't want us here and anything could break out. And they told John Lewis not to be too militant. I mean, there's a lot going on. And so you can see where Dr. King was kind of professorial. But then that you you don't hear it, but... But uh, Mahalia says she saw that he hadn't, he hadn't, he hadn't walked into the dream. See, you can't talk about the, you got to deal with the nightmare. But in order to survive the nightmare, you have to have a hope beyond the nightmare, which is not optimism, but it's prophetic hope. Optimism is things may get worse. Uh, hmm. the thing, I mean, optimism says things are just going to get better. That's not movement. Seventeen days after the march on Washington, four girls got blown up in a church. You don't make, you don't keep going past that with optimism. You got to have a greater hope. And so she said, he needs a hope moment because I have a dream with something he had done other places. But he said, she tell him about the dream, holler, tell him about the dream. And you can see when he says, I, I still have a dream. Now, what happened after that? Four girls get blown up. A president gets killed. Swana, Chaney, and Goodman, they were killed. But the movement kept going because it was rooted in hope and not optimism. So movements have doubts. People who believe in possibility have deep trepidations sometimes. Uh, I, I am of no, I, you know, I've had death threats since in, in the Marl Monday movement. Uh, the one of them said, you'll be dead by Christmas. Uh, you know, I've gotten ugly notes. I, you know, I don't put anything past, uh, you know, in terms when I, if people are willing to cage children, I mean, I'm not talking about me personally. I'm just saying that's mean, man. <laughs> you know, when you when you just wake up in the morning and want to take folks' health care, that's mean. That's not just politics. Mean when when you you know will pass when you will steal a Supreme Court seat. Think about that. You will hold up in a way that hadn't been done since the Civil War. McConnell, that's mean. That's a mean dude, man. He, he just said, I'm not even going to let your 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 Supreme Court nominee get a hearing. Think about that. 
or when right now Trump is trying to appoint a guy by the name of Thomas Farr from North Carolina. Thomas Farr was Jesse Ham's protege. Thomas Farr participated in every attempt to roll back voter rights since the 60s in North Carolina. Thomas Farr is connected to neo-Nazism. Thomas Farr was there when Jesse Ham's you know, use race and a black, white, black hand taking a job from a white mm-hmm. hand to win. Thomas Farr lost against us. Thomas Farr defended the worst voter suppression law we've seen since Jim Crow. And and what is Trump and McConnell and them trying to do? Put him on a lifetime appointment in the Eastern District of North Carolina where the most black folk live. That's mean politics. That's gangster politics, brother. And so I can't be optimistic about what these people are capable of, but I can be hopeful and I can look back and say, well, people face worse than that, you know, and they won. The last time I saw you was actually a very powerful moment. And it was um, on the anniversary of the Selma to Montgomery marches. Um, I was with the Faith and Politics pilgrimage with Congressman Lewis um, who everyone knows who's listened to this podcast and other folks know who he is. He's been a guest uh, on the podcast. And I was with them marching across the bridge. But so were you. You were there. Um, you know, you were on a, with a, a bullhorn. You were speaking. There were people all around. And there was a moment when Congressman Lewis crosses the bridge because there are two lanes. He crossed over the median and walked over to you. And what was powerful about that was knowing Congressman Lewis's history. Mm, yeah. How 50 something years ago, he was beaten, almost killed on that bridge fighting for civil rights. And now he's a member of Congress. And you were on that bridge continuing that, that fight on the outside. He's on the inside as an elected official. You're on the outside and the two of you come together on that bridge. For folks who don't appreciate the inside outside dynamic, can you talk about why that dynamic is so important for a movement? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to have those on the outside who are not necessarily aligned with any political party who will push the issues that give those of conscience on the inside the strength, the backbone, the the power of the movement to make change. And that's why sometimes in history, those who have been on the outside moving to the inside, then there have to be others that remain, you know, if you will, on the outside, not the outside of politics, but the outside of office holding and to have the freedom I said to John Lewis that day, he was a great uh, friend and, 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 and one we elder we look up to, I leaned down and said to him, we won't quit. Um, because it was hurtful to me and to those that were there that as we marched across that bridge, what he fought for had been rolled back. I don't think people have really uh, dealt with the depth of where we are right now. Uh, August 6, 1965, the Voting Rights Act was passed. June 25, 2013, the Voting Rights Act was gutted. We have less voting rights today than we had 53 years ago. Um, and, it, and, and, we, and, and it could have been fixed June 26. The Supreme Court put it into the Congress. Uh, they did offer a fix, but the fix was only going to allow preclearance in Georgia and Texas 
which would have been ugly and rolling it back. And we've seen the very things that Ruth Bader Ginsburg said would happen if, if you remove the umbrella. You know, she said that removing the Voting Rights Act was like taking off an umbrella, take, putting up an umbrella in a rainstorm. And so there was a certain hurt and sorrow to see John Lewis there um, uh, and, and to know that what he fought for, what he was beaten for in that spot. People who say they adore him and love him on the other side of the aisle have taken, <laughs> have allowed to be taken the very thing he fought for. Uh, I don't know if you saw earlier, some of us on the, on the, on the, with the megaphones challenge many of those Congress people who go, who go down with John, who talk about racism in the past, talk about how they admire what the people did uh, from Brown's chapel, but then they come right back to Washington DC and refuse to restore the voting rights. In fact, two years ago, you know, I was put out of the church down there with a group of folk because the Secretary of State of Alabama literally had the nerve to come in on Bloody Sunday and in his greetings said that his photo ID program was the natural outgrowth of the civil rights movement. Oh, that's that's ballsy. Right, right. In the church. In the church. And so Bob Zellner, because I didn't hear him at first, because I I had spoken and I was, actually somebody was asking me something, and I heard Bob Zellner, who was the first white member of SNCC, holler out, liar! And I said, that's Bob Zellner. And I turned and I started listening. And then the guy said, and nobody was saying anything. And I was, and I said, I said, you can't allow people. Now I'm a nice guy, right? I'm a nice guy. Mm-hmm. I love people. But if I see you desecrating my grandmama's grave, we're gonna have some issues. You know, you're not gonna just do that and I not be. And nobody was standing up saying, wait a minute, sit down. You need to sit down. And so I sat then John, and I know what John's position was. You know, so I stood up and said, you, you can't tell that lie, not in here. And he said, excuse me, excuse me. I said, no, 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 excuse you. You're in Brown Chapel. The blood is still stained in the wood of this church. You can't stand up there and say your voter suppression is, is the outgrowth, is paying homage. And so <laughs> the pastor at that time, I don't think he's pastor anymore, he said, Miss Reverend Barber, Reverend Barber, we need to let everybody speak. I said, no, we don't. No, not that, you know, if there's got to be truth anywhere, I serve a Christ who turned over the tables in the temple when lying was going on in the church. So I'm not saying, so a group about hundred of us walked out, you know, they asked us, you know, but it was the greatest walkout I ever participated Mm -hmm. in. So part of what we did this year was we were saying to folk, you can't come down here and walk across this bridge when policies are going the other way. You going across the bridge to pay homage to what they did in the past, but your policies are going back into Selma. And that's why I leaned over to, to John and said, we won't quit because we have to have a movement, Jonathan, that um, um, understands actually these, these last two things. In South Africa, they had a saying, I understand, only a dying mule kicks the hardest. Walter Wink at Union said, sometimes your enemy proves your strength. Here's what I'm starting to say to people. Listen, if folk had to go all the way to Russia to get help, then had to participate in the worst voter suppression since Jim Crow, where we had 868 fewer voting sites in black and brown communities. We had massive voter suppression. We had 250,000 votes, according to R. Berman, that were suppressed in Wisconsin, and Trump only won by 30,000 votes. If they had to 
continually run the Southern strategy in the 21st century, if they had to put pornographic sums of money, uh, you know, uh, secret money into the political system just to eke out a victory, that's not a sign of our weakness. It's a sign of our strength. What we need to do is flip it over and not sit around now and be depressed but go to work. We need to recognize that right now, if you register 30% of the unregistered black voters in the South and find a way to fuse them with progressive whites, not all of them, progressive whites and brown people, Alabama doesn't have to be an anomaly. What happened there doesn't have to be an anomaly. You could turn North Carolina, Georgia, Mississippi, and Florida and Virginia. You can't do it by just organizing for an election and then quitting after the election. But deep dive organizing, bringing black, brown, and white people together, particularly in the South, you can turn. If you turn four or five Southern states, you change American politics. If you don't, if you keep looking for a pathway to victory without going through the South, you're going to end up with what you have. But if you recognize that there are 170, 180 electoral votes from Maryland to Texas back up through Kentucky, you cannot, in a race to 270, surrender 180 electoral votes. Anybody would take that bid. You give me 180 votes and you don't fight for them and I just got to get to 270? That means I only need to get 90 votes from the other 37 states? You give me the South and allow me to just take 31% of the House of Representatives and I only have to get 20% from the other 37 states. You give me 26 members of the United States Senate in 13 states and I only have to pick up 25 in the other uh, 37 states. That's, that's, a, that's a fool's bet. But the demographics are such that if we stop just talking about the middle class and the military, talk about the poor, Talk about systemic racism, not just when Roseanne Barr opens her mouth, but talk about the works of racism and then show people as we when we go around the country, we put up these maps. We got black and white folk in the order. We say, look at this. Look at all the states that did voter suppression. Put that on the map. Then we said, now overlay that with the poorest states. Put that on the map. Overlay that with the states that need health care but denied health care. Put that on the map. Overlay that with the states that have let, don't have living wages. Overlay that with the states that have the worst attacks on gay people. Overlay that with the states that have the worst attacks on Latino people in their state houses and in their congressional and, and, and uh, Senate delegation. And it's the same states. It's the same states. So if, if, the, if, if people are using racist voter suppression to get elected, and then once they get elected, they're using their power to hurt mostly white people, poor white people. We, can't, we can be genius enough to bring folk together, and you don't need everybody. It's not like you need 50% increase. A 12 to 15% increase in most of these states of black and white and brown people could fundamentally shift the dynamics. That's what we have to, I believe, bring to the table now in the 21st century. So you, if you're speaking like I'm getting mad, <laughs> just <laughs> listening to all the history and, and everything that you've been talking about. Well, I mean, let's just be serious. I've been mad since yeah. Election Day uh, of, 20, of, of 2016. Yeah. And, and makes me think, like, how do you keep from cussing? And you're, you, you're <laughs> a man of the cloth. And so you're not going to curse. But when we came in, when we came in here, you mentioned that there are five curse words in the Bible <laughs> that where you could actually you could curse and not be and not be countered to the Lord. What are they? Well, I don't know if I give you all five because I don't want you to use them. <laughs> well, I can't right, use right, them. Right, I'm right, not right. a man. Remember the clock? Right. But, man let, of the clock, but, but let me let me put it to you like this and frame it like this real quickly. <laughs> when when um, 
Mm. Thoreau was in jail. They say his friend came by and said, what are you doing in jail? He said, what are you doing not in jail? He said, will you, and then they asked him, would he repent for his call for civil disobedience and other things? He said, the only thing I will repent of is for not asking sooner what demons possessed me so long to be quiet, possessed me so much to be quiet so long. William Lord Garrison, who was white when he was locked up in Boston, not in the South, in Boston, because he was an abolitionist, wrote on his cell, I, William Lord Garrison, have been arrested to protect me from a mob that wants to destroy me for preaching the damnable gospel that all men are created equal. Um, Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 22, said that when politicians hurt the poor, the children, and the women, they can be, they are described as rabies-infested wolves. That's the term is actually used in Hebrew. Um, Isaiah 58 says, you have to loose the bands of wickedness. In Hebrew, the bands of wickedness is when you don't pay people what they deserve. Um, Isaiah 10 verses one and three says, woe unto those who legislate evil, not just legislate, legislate evil by robbing the poor of their rights and make women and children pray. Jesus you know, talked about the poor and the left out and those who've been made poor by economic exploitation. And he declared that some things were damned. That's what the word condemned means. In other words, if you don't believe in love and justice, you are condemned, damned. Um, um, his brother James said that when you um, hurt the poor and steal from the working, this is James chapter five, it's like a cancer in the gut of the nation. Now we don't talk like that. We don't, you know, we, we don't want to talk like that. Because we've got this mamsy pamsy view of spirituality that like it's just about you get to make God your divine bell hop and he just brings you breakfast and bread and gives you a little spiritual motivation and you know and and and, and it, it's not just among white evangelicals you got some places even in black church circles that are, they aren't doing what Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass and others like that it's just kind of you know give me a praise team and a party you know and no social <laughs> consciousness <laughs> no sense. But the reality is, and, and I'll be real serious, and I'm serious about that, but let me be very serious. In the Bible, the prophets were licensed to curse. Now, I'm not talking about mere profanity, just loose profanity because you can't think of any word, which is a, my dad used to say, is a reflection of your inability to be intelligent. I'm talking about knowing what is cursed knowing what is damned. As Dr. King said, the things that damn men's souls and damn men's bodies. And so, you know, racism is a damned thing. It's an evil thing. It's a form of, of um, insanity. It is a, it is a, it is a misuse of religion to suggest that God created folk. Um, poverty is a damnable thing. It doesn't have to be. When people say the poor will be all with you, they misquote that scripture. Jesus was saying the poor will be all with you always because you won't do right, because you won't care for the poor and create policies. Um, um, the prophets often called um, evil policies excrement, dung, 
you know, uh, uh, and, 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 you know, we have a word for that in slang. Um, but my point is, if you do not know what is cursed, you do not know what is blessed. When you use religion to hate people because of their sexuality or their, their, where they come from, that is a damnable thing for you to think for one moment you have the authority to demean, destroy, and dismiss somebody that God made. And it ought to be cursed. It ought to be called what it is. It is not blessed. That is not a way to have a blessed America. Uh, and even if you don't believe in religion, our Constitution says there are four things and only four upon which we have a legacy worthy of being passed on to future generations. Ensuring domestic tranquility. So if you are a president or a congressperson and every policy you engage, every time you open your mouth, you're ensuring domestic division, that's unconstitutional. That's wrong. That's a damned thing. If, if, if the establishment of justice, but if every policy you pass is establishing injustice and creating greater wealth gaps, then you lied. You didn't just, you, that's not just a right position. You lied, you know? You told a lie when you put your hand on the on the Bible and swore to uphold the Constitution, providing for the common defense. If all you're thinking about is the defense, the military, but then you leave children defenseless in cages, or you leave people with bad water defenses, you lied again. That's a damnable thing. If you promote, if you don't promote the general welfare, instead you take welfare and you cut SNAP and you don't care about people surviving, and you basically say that banks and corporations, you're gonna treat them like people, and people you're gonna treat like things, and you're going to pay, you're gonna say banks and corporations are too big to fail, but people are okay for them to fail. That's just wrong. And, and the Constitution says only when you provide, when you, <clears throat> when you ensure domestic tranquility, establish justice, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, do you then have a liberty worthy of being passed on to future generations, your posterity? In other words, in theological terms, then only then do you have a blessed thing. But if you pass on injustice, if you pass on the denial of fundamental human rights, if you pass on division, you're passing on a curse. And America's got to decide right now not tomorrow, not next day, not next week, right now. What are we going to pass on? Reverend William Barber, president and senior lecturer of Repairs of the Breach, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you, John. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try Retropod, 
a daily show for history lovers featuring surprising stories about the past rediscovered. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.